Again, it's great to uh, see so many of you here. Yes, the kids that are going to class, you can uh, be dismissed now. So how many of you really enjoyed the snow last week? Okay, some of you did. Uh, Now, my wife loves the snow, so um, that was great for her and the grandkids. You got to understand, my grandkids, they've been born and raised in Africa, both South Africa and Kenya. They'd never seen snow. So um, they were kind of freaked out at first, especially Oliver, but uh, the two-and-a-half-year-old. But uh, they just had a great time playing in the snow. Now, um, I don't enjoy it as much simply because I'm the one who has to do the shoveling, okay? Yeah. We've got, uh, we've got a long driveway, probably close to 60 foot in length and a steep. So um, 15 inches of snow is a lot. And so, especially when you've had two back surgeries. So I, I want to thank Jen and Josh for coming over on Monday and helping us finish. Because my son and I, we got started on Sunday night and then Jen and, and Josh came over and helped us um, on um, Uh, Monday afternoon, so we were able to get things finished and get out, because I really wanted to get up here to check the church out, because we've had leaks, and you can imagine 15 inches of snow on a flat roof, and you've had leaks before, I was just afraid it was going to be everywhere dripping, but it wasn't, had no leaks, uh, praise God, so um, we got that taken care of, so that's awesome, but um, yes, so snow is something that's uh, beautiful to look at, I just hate to shovel it. So that's just all there is. So I'm glad we were able to have church today, and I'm glad that we didn't have to fight the snow today. You know, as we think about Christmas time, I love stories of kids because kids are so honest, and, you know, kids pretty well just tell you the way it is. And there was a story told of a, a young boy who just, he, he had just been a terror all year. I mean, he hardly ever minded. You know, he was always getting in trouble, both at home, both at school. But yet, when it came to Christmas, he was wanting the latest and the greatest and the biggest when it came to gifts. You know, and he was bombarding his parents with, I want this, I want this, I want this. And yet, he was still acting up. So finally, it was, you know, just a few days before Christmas, his mom got tired of it. She just simply said, look, you need to write a letter to Jesus. And you need to ask Jesus to forgive you for how bad you've been this year. Because if you don't, you may not get anything for Christmas. She had just had it. So she said, I want you to go upstairs. I want you to get your paper out and a pen out or a pencil out. I just want you to write a letter to Jesus. So he goes upstairs, sits down at his desk in his room, pulls out a piece of paper, gets a pen, begins to write, Dear Jesus, I promise you, for the next year, I will be good. Especially if you bring me. And then he stopped and thought a minute. Tore that piece of paper up to it in trash. Pulls out another one. Dear Jesus, I promise I'll be good for the next six months. If, thought a minute, tore it up, threw it in the paper, trash. Got out another piece of paper, began to write. Dear Jesus, I promise for the next month I'll be good. Thought about it. Took the piece of paper, watered it up, threw it in the trash. Ran downstairs. In front of the fireplace, right beside it, they had a nativity set. 
He reached in, grabbed the figurine of Mary, ran upstairs, got in his closet, pulled out a shoebox, stuffed Mary in the shoebox, put it up in his closet, took out a piece of paper and began to write, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mom again. <laughs> Kids, right? <laughs> I love that one. Somebody wrote it, you, you know when that Christmas is almost here when there are more pine needles on your carpet than there are on the tree. Everybody, anybody ever had that problem? Anybody? Yeah. Okay, Donna, good. Um, how, or this one, uh, when your credit card is smoked along with the turkey and the ham, right? Anybody already smoked your credit card? You don't have to say, okay? You don't have to tell me. Or it's a wonderful life has been shown for the 13th time. Or a trip to the mall and back is more challenging than the Indy 500. Anybody ever just found that to be true, right? How many were out Friday or Saturday? Traffic was crazy. Lucy and I on Friday afternoon went and ate at Carabas for lunch. You know where Carabas is on Stratford? Stratford was backed up from there all the way to Haynes Mall Boulevard. That's how bad it was. So I can understand that one. Or how about this one? The Salvation Army bell ringers start accepting credit cards. Or you pull an all-nighter because of these words. Ever had this happen? Some assembly required. Parents, you ever had that one happen? Yeah, we have. I, let me tell you. Now, as we think about the series that we began a couple weeks ago, as we began to look in Isaiah chapter 9, and we began to look at some of the names of Christ. I began to just do a little bit of research. And it's interesting. I said earlier in the service that God always knows what's best. And I don't always know why things happen the way they do. But I always know God knows what's best. And I just got to trust that. So last week, this is the message I was going to preach, was on Mighty God. But let me tell you, this is a totally different message in so many ways than what I would have preached last week. And the reason is, is because this whole week, God just took me in a totally different direction. Um, I don't know if that's why we got snow. You can blame me. I don't know. Or if I just am hard-headed enough that it took that for God to just to get through with me. I don't know. But I do want you to know, this is just really a totally different message because this is what I believe God wanted us to understand and wanted us to say. So let me get, let me get started. The year was 1809. And during that year, several significant people were born. In Britain, William Gladstone was born. He would become one of England's finest statesmen. Alfred Lloyd, Lloyd Lord Tennyson was born. He would become one of the great authors of his day. Charles Robert Darwin would be known for his theories on evolution. In the U.S., Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And not far away in Boston, Edgar Allan Poe would begin his eventful, albeit tragic, life. And in a log cabin in Kentucky, a man by the name, or a baby by the name of Abraham Lincoln was born. Now, if there had been a news broadcast in 1809, the focus wouldn't have been on any of these babies that were born. The focus would have been on an Australian battlefield. You see, war was being waged between Austria and Napoleon I and the French Empire. But what they didn't realize was that history was actually being shaped in the cradles of England and America. Here's the thing. Every age has its dangers, and every age has its difficulties. I mean, even today in the U.S., we're concerned with finances and terrorism and political uncertainty and unrest. 
Sooner or later, every nation will face things that will make them believe that the future is only being shaped by the events of that day. And viewing life through that lens will always make the future look bleak and dark and hopeless. And that's what we find as we come into the book of Isaiah. You see, the nation of Israel had turned their back on God, and in turn, God had turned his back on the people. During this time, the Assyrian army had swept down upon them like a flood and washed over them with a vengeance. And yet, in the midst of all this hopelessness, God began to tell the people that hope would be found in the birth of a baby. He basically said this in Isaiah chapter 9. He basically said, don't be afraid, have courage, because in the midst of your darkness, I'm going to bring a great light, and your despair will be turned to joy, and your enemies will be defeated. And the way you're going to get that victory and joy is from something that you would never expect. I'm going to send a baby, a baby who will be born, and, and a baby who will one day rescue you. That's right, a baby. And if you want to know what this baby will be like, I'll tell you. He's going to be a wonderful counselor. And he's going to be a mighty God. And he's going to be an everlasting father. And he will be the Prince of Peace. Again, two weeks ago, we began this series called His Name Shall Be Called, based on Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. This is what it says. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As we began two weeks ago, we began by unpacking that first name, Wonderful Counselor. Because the reality of life is this, every one of us needs somebody who will always listen to us, Right? And that's Jesus. That's our wonderful counselor. Somebody who will tell us the truth. Somebody who knows us better than we know ourselves. Somebody who knows every situation that we go to. And somebody who will always give us that clear direction. And that's Jesus. That's our wonderful counselor. Now this week, I want us to begin to unpack that second name. Mighty God. And as we do, we'll discover that not only do we need somebody to listen to us, but get this, we need somebody to rescue us. We need somebody to rescue us. So pray with me as we begin. Father, I just thank you so much for this day, and I thank you for all you do. Man, sometimes we get so caught up in the moment, so caught up with the circumstances of life, so caught up with hearing the, what's on the news or what we see on the computers, and we see all this stuff, and we think, wow, is there hope? And we forget that hope is found in a person, and his name is Jesus. So, Father, today, help our focus to be totally on him and him alone. It's in your name we pray. Amen. In this passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we find an amazing paradox because God is telling the people that one day, one day that a baby's going to come. A baby, the most vulnerable of human beings, 
one who can't feed themselves, clothe themselves, communicate, defend themselves, and one who is completely dependent on somebody else. And he says that this child that will be born will be a mighty God. He'll be a mighty God. Now, I wonder, I wonder what was going through the mind of the people of Israel as they heard that. As they heard God say that through the birth of a, a baby, he will become a mighty God. Here's the thing. We've got the, we have the privilege of knowing how Isaiah's prophecy ends, right? We have that privilege. We see the backside of it. But put yourself in Isaiah's time and think about what the people must have thought. They needed hope and they needed to be rescued. They needed God. And God's saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it, but it's going to come through a baby. And he'll be your mighty God. Now, as I begin to research this and study this, the phrase mighty God is one of the most powerful names given to the coming Messiah, given to Jesus. The Hebrew words for mighty God are El Gabor. El is the shortened form of Elohim, which is one of the most common names used for God in the Old Testament. And whenever the shortened form was used, it almost always carried the meaning, the mighty one. Now, the interesting thing is, Gabor also means mighty. It means strong. It means powerful. It means champion. It means hero. And so literally what Isaiah is saying in this verse is this. He will be called the mighty, mighty God. He will be your champion. He will be your hero. Now, one of the premier passages in the New Testament that helps us to understand this description of Jesus is found in Colossians chapter 1. I love this passage, verses 15 through 17. A lot of scholars actually believe that this section of Scripture was a poem or it was a hymn that the early church would actually read or sing because it portrayed what they believed about Jesus. Paul writes these words in Colossians 1. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Does that kind of give you a description of how mighty Jesus is, why he is called our mighty God. Or how about John, as he writes in John 1, 3, he says, all things were made by him and nothing was made without him. The writer of Hebrews also testifies to Jesus being the creator of all things when he says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything, get this, by the mighty power of his command. You see, the Bible testifies to the fact that Jesus is our mighty Mighty God. 
He's our champion. He's our hero. He is all-powerful. In Him, all things are held together. Through Him, all things were created. So let me ask you, why is it important for us to understand that Jesus is our mighty God? Why is that important for us? Why do we need to take that in and allow it to just melt into our hearts so that it becomes a part of us? I'm going to give you two reasons today why this is so important for us to understand that Jesus is our mighty, mighty God. And the first is simply this. It's because you and I, we cannot save ourselves. That's the bottom line. We cannot save ourselves. The Bible in Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. If you go into chapter 6 and the last part of verse 23, it says the payment for sin is death. In other words, the wages of sin is death. Your sin is just going to bring death. You see, the reality of life is this. Apart from Jesus, we are doomed to an eternity separated from our God. Why? Because we can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. You and I... We do not have that kind of power. And because of that, there is nothing that we can do on our own to repair the damage that's been done because of the sin that's in our life. You and I, we can't save ourselves and we we never will be able to. It's a great passage found in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. And Paul describes this in such a great way. He just paints such an amazing picture for us to help us to understand this concept. Listen to what Paul writes starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us, not some of us, not just a few of us, all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclination of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, or your version may say, the wrath of God, just like everyone else. Paul says... You want to know how much power you have? This is it. You have none. You can't save yourself. Why? Because you're dead in sin. You're dead in it. You're dead men walking. You may be physically able to walk, but you are dead when it comes to your spiritual life because of the sin that's there apart from Jesus Christ. He says, you follow the ways of this world. You follow the spirit of the ruler of the air, Satan. And and by nature of that, you come under The very wrath of God. Let me illustrate like this. Some of you may remember this. How many of you guys, how many of you guys like to camp? Anybody like to camp? Be honest. How many love to camp? How many would go camping if you didn't have anything else to do? (laughs) Lucy hates to camp. Her idea of camping is Motel 6. Okay, that's camping. You know, she just hates to camp. But suppose, suppose you wanted to 
take a camping trip. And maybe you went with family or maybe you just went with a group of friends. I don't know. But you went camping and you go to the mountains of Colorado. Now, I love the mountains of Colorado. I've done some camping there. I've done whitewater rafting there. I've shared that with you before. It was pretty painful. But I love the Colorado Rockies. But let me tell you, every year, every year, there are those who wander off and get lost. And if they're lucky, they're found. Some of them not alive. Now, let's suppose that you go camping. And you've, you've been there for a day or two, and you decide that the next morning you're going to get up before anybody else gets up, and you want to go on a nature hike because it is so beautiful. It is so gorgeous. And you just want to experience everything that the surrounding area has to give to you. You just want to experience that. But you're not going to tell anybody you're going. You just want to spend it by yourself. So the next morning you get up. You crawl out of your sleeping bag. You head off very quietly, and you begin to walk. And you just begin to take in everything that nature has to give you. And you walk, and you walk, and you walk, and it's so beautiful. Pretty soon you come to this kind of fork in the path, and you're not sure which way to go, but this way looks pretty good. So you, you think, I'm just going to go that way. And so you head off that way, and you walk, and you walk, and you walk, and then you come to another fork, and you, you say, I don't know, but maybe this way looks pretty cool. I'm going to go that way. And you head off, and you walk, and you walk, and you walk. And what seems like about 45 minutes has actually been an hour and a half to two hours. And you're actually pretty far from camp. And worse than that, you really have no idea where you're at. And so you say to yourself, you know, I need to get back. Nobody knows I'm gone. They're going to start worrying about me, so I'm going to head back. And you go in the direction you thought you came from. And you walk and you walk, and pretty soon you do not see anything that looks really familiar. Because when you come to those forks, you just happen to take the wrong one. And pretty soon, fear begins to set in, and you begin to panic a little bit, get a little anxious, and all of a sudden, the walk turns into a jog, and then a run. And then you begin to feel the effects of what will probably be your death, as the high altitude in the thin air begins to take its toll upon your body, and your body temperature begins to drop. And as it drops... You no longer can run. In fact, you no longer can do much of anything. And you simply fall to the ground. And you prop yourself up against a tree. And you say to yourself, I'm lost. And I'm going to die. Now let me tell you, if you can put yourself in that place, you put yourself exactly where Paul left you in verse 3. Because without Christ, your life is hopeless. But here's the cool thing. Our mighty God, we can't save ourselves, but get this, He can. He can. We can't save us, but He can save us. Let's go back to our story a minute. And so you're leaning against the tree. And you've said to yourself, I'm lost. Nobody knows where I'm at. 
I didn't tell anybody I was going. And I'm probably going to die. And pretty soon you begin to hear that kind of castata thump as the blaze of a helicopter begin to beat against the thin air. And as it gets a little louder, you really want to jump up and wave your arms and you really want to scream, but you can't because you have no energy left. You can't move, you can barely talk, and you just sit there. But it gets louder and louder, and then you hear the sound of feet hitting the ground and then footsteps as they run towards you. And then you feel the most awesome feeling that you've ever felt as arms reach around you and pick you up. And in that moment, you say to yourself, I was lost. Nobody knew where I was at. I was going to die. But I'm saved. I'm saved. Now, if you can put yourself there, you put yourself where Paul puts us starting in verse 4. Because look at, look at what verse 4 says in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, two of the most beautiful words in the scriptures, but God is so rich in mercy. You know what mercy is? Mercy is the fact that we don't get what we deserve. We deserve death. But we don't get that. Why? Because of his mercy. He is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you've been saved. And look what he says down in verses 8 and 9. You did not save yourselves. It was a gift from God. It was not the result of your own efforts. So you cannot brag about it. You see, reality is this. You know, what, you know why we need a mighty, mighty God? is because you and I can't save ourselves. And so we need somebody to rescue us. And so God sent a baby, and his name was Jesus, and he came to be the Savior of the world. He came to rescue you and me. Here's the thing. As you go through the journey of the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament, woven throughout that fabric are two important themes. One is this, sin will always separate us from God. And the second theme is this, God has had a plan since the creation of the world to take care of the sin problem. And so as we think about God's plan, there's an incredible word that keeps popping up. It's the word redemption. You see, redemption is that beautiful word that embraces God's entire plan of salvation. The word had several usages throughout the Old Testament, but common to them all is this idea of freedom that comes from a price that was paid. I love this. I don't know who wrote it, but somebody wrote, Redemption is a word that implies helplessness. It's the picture of one held captive by forces that they cannot overcome. It's only by the intervention of a third party that they can be rescued. You see, redemption can never be possessed by human effort alone. It can only happen through the work of a redeemer. This word reminds us, as followers of Jesus, that our relationship with the Father came at a very great cost. We have a redeemer. 
That's why starting with Adam and Eve and carrying out throughout the Old Testament, God made it very clear that forgiveness can only come through the shedding of blood. You remember the last plague that brought the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt? Remember it? When God said, I want you to take that spotless lamb and I want you to kill it. And I want you to, to cook down that meat. I want you to eat all of it. And then I want you to take the blood and I want you to paint it on your doorpost because tonight the death angel comes. And when the death angel comes, he will pass over all the homes that are covered by the blood of the lamb. I want you to remember that thought for just a moment because we're going to come back to it in just a minute. So throughout the whole Old Testament, that's the picture we get. That forgiveness only comes through the shedding of blood. Freedom only comes through the shedding of blood. You and I, we can't save ourselves. But our mighty, mighty Redeemer, God can, Jesus, the Messiah. That's why Isaiah wrote these words in Isaiah 53, starting in verse 5. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. The Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Who's him? Him is Jesus, our Redeemer. That's why the angel spoke these words to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. It's why John could cry out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of mankind. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of mankind. And that's why Jesus could say to his disciples at the Passover dinner. You remember? I told you just to remember those thoughts a minute ago. At the Passover dinner, as Jesus took the bread and as he took the cup, he basically said this. This is my body, which will carry all your sins. And it will be broken for you. And this is my blood that will be spilled to cleanse you. And it will pay the price for your sins. It's going to take all of my body. And it's going to take all of my blood to redeem you. And to buy you back. You remember at the Passover? When the death angel came, Jesus said, or God told the people, I want you to eat the lamb, and I want you to take its blood and place it upon your doorpost. Jesus says, I am the lamb. And when you take me, you've taken my body, and it's been broken for you, and my blood has been spilled for you. And as we know, a short time later, Jesus was nailed to a cross, and as the blood flowed, he breathed his last breath, and he said, it is finished. It is finished. Now, let me tell you, Jesus wasn't giving up when he said those words. 
Jesus wasn't surrendering when he said those words. What he was saying was this. God's plan of redemption that started in the garden with Adam and Eve, that was prophesied through the Old Testament, that was birthed through Mary, is now fulfilled in me. It's been brought to completion. And that's why Paul could sum up God's amazing plan of redemption with these words. But God shows his great love for us in this. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. So through Christ, we will surely be saved from God's anger because we have been made right with God by the blood of Christ's death. In Colossians chapter 2, look what he says. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, for he gave, forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. You see, Jesus' birth, it set into motion the final stage of God's redemptive plan. And it was brought to completion on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. He did it because you and I, we can't save ourselves. He did it because you and I, we can never pay the price for the sin that's in our life. We can never pay that price. But he could. You see, the reality of life is this. Every person is lost in a world that has been hopelessly damaged by sin But the one whom Isaiah prophesied about 700 years before his miraculous birth came to rescue us, and he became our mighty, mighty God. Let's reflect. True story. There was a young 20-year-old girl who was standing by the statue of a fireman. She was reflecting back. You see, 20 years earlier, there was a great fire that broke out in the apartment building in which she lived. And as they came to put out the fire and to begin to rescue the people, all of a sudden, the parents said, our daughter is still in her room. One farmer volunteered to go, and as he climbed the ladder and he went into the room, he found the daughter huddled in the corner, and he picked her up and handed her out the window. And in that instant, as she made it into the arms of another firefighter, the floor that he was on collapsed, and he was killed. And now she stands before a statue of the fireman. And she's standing there just looking at him and tears are streaming down her face and somebody comes by and they stop and they say, ma'am, is, was that firefighter? Was that your dad? Is, is that why you're crying? And she said, no, it wasn't my dad. They said, well, who was it? And she simply said these words, that's the man who died in my place to save me. You and I, we have a mighty, mighty God. And our mighty, mighty God died in our place to save us, to rescue us, to give us hope, to give us a future, to give us a home in heaven.
The question is, this Christmas season, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to allow everything that the world says Christmas is, all the glitz and the glamour and the, the tinsel and the lights, are you going to let all that distract you, all the shopping? Or is your focus going to be on a baby who became a mighty God who went to the cross to save you and to give you hope and to give you life? You see, like it always is, it's your choice. And it's my choice. So here's what we're going to do. I just want you to pray. I just want you to spend a moment just, just praying, just saying, God, examine my heart. And God, you show me if there's anything in me right now that needs to change. God, if my focus is not right, then you change me and help me to never forget that you're my mighty God. And that I can't do this without you. So just bow your heads. Just close your eyes and just spend a moment. Then we're going to do something else. But let's just... Let's just kind of pray together, just silently. I pray that you look at those things that are there that maybe need to change or maybe we need to get rid of. But God, help us to never forget. We can't save ourselves. There's no amount of money that could ever pay the price. There's nothing we could ever do that was so good that it would make the difference. And pay the debt that we owe. It's only because of you. It's only because of our mighty, mighty God. Who died in our place. And so thank you, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.